Well, I want to tell you that um, I love sharing the gospel with people. I love having one-on-one gospel conversations, what I sometimes call eyeball-to-eyeball, kneecap-to-kneecap conversations. I love doing that. And every time that I have a gospel conversation, I always walk away from that conversation, really no matter how the conversation turns out, I always walk away thrilled, literally exhilarated with the privilege of being able to speak to a person about their own need of a Savior and what Christ did to to redeem them and how that through his resurrection they can have eternal life and how that by trusting in him their sins can be forgiven. I'm always exhilarated when I walk away from those conversations. I love to do it. But if I'm completely honest with you, I have to tell you that oftentimes I am scared to death to do it. I love to share the gospel, but sometimes fear keeps me holding back or hesitating in sharing the gospel. So here's here's what's true. I love to preach, right? If you've been around Brookstone anytime at all, you know I love to preach. I would rather preach than eat, literally. It's one of my favorite things to do. I I love to teach the Bible. I'm very comfortable standing up in, in front of a group of people teaching. I can lead a large group in a meeting. But you put me one on one with somebody, and I just need to tell you, I'm a little bit of an introvert. I'm a little little bashful, and maybe hard for some of you to believe, but it's absolutely. It's absolutely true. In, in the church, I'm like a fish in a fishbowl, man. I'm, I'm in my environment. But in a one-on-one conversation outside of this environment, it's much more difficult for me. Am I talking to anybody who maybe understands, feels that a little bit? Amen? So here's what I know to be true. That gospel conversations, sharing the gospel with other people is exhilarating, it's thrilling, it is absolutely necessary for us to do, but it is sometimes really, really frightening. And so, if we're going to push through the fear, if we're going to push past the hesitation and actually have these gospel conversations, we are going to have to be disciplined to do that. It is going to require us to exercise some discipline. And that's a good thing because in this series, as you know, we have been talking a lot about discipline and how it is that we can grow in discipline. So let me welcome you into the final week. This is week number six, our last week in this series where we're talking about getting spiritually fit. Do you remember we've been talking about exercising our spiritual muscles and embracing some spiritual disciplines? And all six of these series messages have been based upon this foundational verse in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, which says, if you remember, have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself. It means discipline yourself for godliness. So far, we've talked about five spiritual disciplines, five spiritual disciplines that we hopefully have been embracing over the last five weeks. Let me run through them quickly. Number one was scripture intake, reading your Bible, studying your Bible, having the habit in your life that there's a regular disciplined ingestion of the truths of scripture into your mind and your heart. Number two, 
personal prayer, that we have the discipline of praying about everything, leaning into every need and burden and expectation and anticipation, leaning into all of it with a heart of prayer. Number three, the discipline of servanthood, that we would begin to embrace this mindset that says, it's not about me, it's about others. I'm going to think others first and live to serve rather than to be served. Number four was generosity, that we have been called to live with open-handedness, not a miserly spirit, not a clenched fist, but an open hand and an intentional investment into the work of God, that we would learn this discipline of stewardship as we choose to be generous. And then last week we talked about the spiritual discipline of assembling with the church, this very necessary discipline that we would not neglect this assembling together with the body of Christ, but that we would be participating and connecting uh, in the body and serving one another. Today we're coming to the final one. Jot it down somewhere. I've already told you what it is, but we're talking about the final spiritual discipline of personal evangelism. Personal evangelism, this means evangelism for which I am personally responsible, not corporate evangelism, not church evangelism. We're talking about Jim here, or, or you put your name in that sentence, that, that I am responsible for evangelizing people who don't know the Lord. Let me begin our time together by familiarizing you with the book of 1 Corinthians and the city to which it was written, or the church to which it was written in the city of Corinth. Just a little word about ancient Corinth, during the time of the Apostle Paul in the first century, Corinth was a bustling um, metropolitan area. It was this cosmopolitan melting pot of different cultures that came together there near the tip of Greece. The location of Corinth made it a city where it was right along the east and west trade routes. So it was a it was a large city, probably including every inhabitant, citizens, non-citizens, servants or slaves, probably half a million people that live there. It's a busy place. It's a place where all of these people crossing paths and coming together there at Corinth would bring their cultures and they would bring their languages and they would bring their religions and they would bring their paganism and all of it came together in this melting pot of people. It was also the city in Greece where Rome had its capital um, centered. It was where the Roman uh, governor uh, in that part of the world was officed. It's where the politicians were. It's where the, the uh, military was. And so it's a powerful city. It's a multicultural city. It's a multi-ethnic city. It is a wealthy city. It is a luxurious city. And according to ancient documents and archaeology, we know that it was a very immoral, ungodly city. So think about it. Does that sound a little bit like some cities in America today, right? A melting pot of people who come from different cultures and bring their languages and their cultures and their ideas and their, and their religion and their paganism and their views of the world. They bring all of that together. And it, in, in all of those cities like that, be it Corinth, be it New York City, be it Weaverville or Asheville, North Carolina, there is a great need for a gospel witness. 
a great need for a gospel witness. And so God met the need in Corinth for there to be a gospel witness by establishing a church in that place. Listen carefully. If y'all listening, all campuses, shout amen. Listen. When God needs to meet a gospel need in a city, he is going to do it by raising up a church in that city. God works through his church. It's what he did in Corinth. It's what he did in Ephesus. It's what he did in Colossae. It's what he did in Thessalonica over and over. It's what he is doing in Asheville. And it's what you and I get to be a part of. You say, pastor, why are we putting a campus out West? And why are we putting a campus in South? And why do we need a campus out East? And we've got one here in Weaverville. Here's why. Because in this County and the surrounding counties in Western North Carolina, there is a great need for a gospel witness and God gets the gospel to lost people through his church church. That's what he does. And so God raised up a church in Corinth. He raised it up through the ministry of the apostle Paul around the year AD 50 or 51. I'm going to read to you from Acts 18. I think you'll be encouraged by what this says about the founding of the Corinthian church. Listen to verse number one, Acts 18 verse one. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and he came to Corinth And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, uh, but having recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. So Paul arrives in Corinth, and immediately he, he connects with Aquila and Priscilla. You know those names, don't you? Aquila and Priscilla? This is a couple that figure prominently in Paul's ministry going forward. They figure prominently in in the church in Corinth. They disciple Apollos. They have great influence for Christ. Now, we don't know if Paul led them to Jesus or not. The Bible doesn't say. Maybe they already knew Jesus and somehow they had heard the gospel and met him. Maybe Paul led them to Christ. In either case, at least Paul discipled them and they began to be very important in his ministry. Aquila and Priscilla. Look at what the Bible says in verse number two. They had come from Italy. Why? Because that Claudius, that's Claudius Caesar, had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. Stop right there. Wow. That's anti-Semitism. That's a dispersion of the Jewish people out of Rome, forced out of Rome throughout other parts of the empire, long before there was the great diaspora taking them out of the land of Israel, the Jewish people under persecution for so many years, this is all the way back in the first century, they're driven out of Rome. And so they come to Corinth and Paul meets them and came unto them. That is, he began to live with them. Verse three, because he was of the same craft, the same trade, he lived with them and worked with them for by their occupation, they were tent makers. So Aquila and Priscilla earned their living making tents Paul earned his living the same way, so they, they lived together and they worked together. Paul was a tent maker. Now, you understand this, right? Don't, don't think about camping world. Can I get your attention off camping? Don't think about going out in the woods and pit, pitching your, your tent to camp. That's not what Paul made. Paul was a maker of the prayer shawl, the tallit. Because that, that, remember, that was called a tent. That was their own personal tabernacle, the tent of meeting. So they would put their prayer shawl on. That's what Paul and Aquila and Priscilla were weaving. Well, they earned their living that way. But Paul's busy about ministry. Verse number four, he reasoned, Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and he persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. So Paul's busy preaching the gospel every Sabbath going to the synagogue. 
Look at verse number eight. And Crispus, who was the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. There's a conversion. Paul goes to the synagogue, he preaches. Crispus believes the gospel and is converted along with his family. And verse 8 goes on to say, And many of the Corinthians, hearing the gospel, believed the gospel and were baptized. Well, guess what you have when you go to a group of lost people, you preach the gospel to them, they believe the gospel, and then you baptize those new believers. New believers. What do you have? You have a church. And so that is the beginning, the birth of the church in Corinth. And Paul stayed. Look at verse 11. Paul continued there with them. For a year and six months, 18 months, he stayed with them and he discipled them. Now, at the end of 18 months, he moved on in his missionary journeys, but he remained connected with these Corinthian believers. He continued to disciple them by writing letters back to them. And we know that he wrote at least two letters to the Corinthians because we have both of those letters in our New Testament, First and Second Corinthians. He likely wrote at least a third letter, maybe many more, but he continued to communicate with them through letter writing. Now, it's interesting when you read 1 Corinthians. I don't know if you've ever read it much or studied it, but I would highly recommend that you do so. Because when you read 1 Corinthians, you're reading a letter that is, that is deep and rich theologically. There are some really wonderful theological truths, what's true of God and true of his son Jesus in this book. However, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is also um, incredibly relevant and practical. It speaks to us about a wide range of life topics that we need as followers of Jesus. If you survey through the book of 1 Corinthians in chapters 1 and 2, he deals with their doctrines and their divisions. In the Corinthian church, they were dividing from one another. And he deals with, in chapters 1 and 2, these divisions among the people within the church. He deals with what, um, what uh, he calls in these chapters their, their petty personal arguments. He confronts those things in this chapter and he calls them to, uh, to reconciliation. In chapter 3, he deals with their spiritual immaturity. He says to them in chapter 3, you should be further along in your walk with God than you are now. Um, you should have grown. You should be teaching others now what I'm trying to teach you. He's challenging them to grow spiritually. In chapter 5, he deals with a, a problem of real sin in the church. He confronts them about some real immorality in the church. In chapter number six, he deals with how to settle their conflicts within the body of Christ, that there ought to be a mediator that could bring about a reconciliation, that they don't need to go outside of the church for that. In chapter seven, he deals with Christian marriage. In chapter seven, he talks about what, if you, what do you do if you're a Christian married to a non-believer? And, and what, what's the influence of a Christian spouse on their non-Christian spouse? And, and what if the non-Christian spouse leaves? How should the Christian spouse uh, handle that? He deals with marital intimacy in chapter 7 and how that married couples ought to approach that topic. In chapter 8, he deals with legalism and liberty. In chapter 13, it's the great love chapter. He deals with the, the superlative of love. 
chapters 12 and 14, he deals with spiritual gifts and how we serve one another within the body of Christ. In chapter 15, he deals with the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the body. I mean, do you see it's a wide-ranging, rich, and practical book about all these issues. It would do you well to study it, to take some notes on it as you go through it. Well, in giving you all of that information about each chapter, I skipped chapter 9 because we're going to talk about chapter 9. And in this chapter, Paul, Paul speaks very personally about his own life mission to share the gospel with other people. And I want you and I to learn from this. It's very instructive to us. And so follow along. 1 Corinthians chapter number 9, beginning in verse number 16. Paul writes, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of or boast about. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, if I preach the gospel willingly, I have a reward. But if I do it against my will, well, there's still a dispensation of the gospel which has been committed unto me. So what is my reward then, he asks. Truly, it's this. That when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. We'll talk about that in a minute, but he's talking about the privilege of simply sharing the gospel. Verse 19, for though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself a servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. And to them that are under the law, I became as one that was under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, I became as one without the law, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak, I became as weak, so that I might gain the weak. He summarizes in verse 22, I made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker thereof with you. Now my time is a little bit limited today because we needed to talk about Israel. So let me move through this pretty quickly, but I don't want you to miss any of it. Jot down in your notes somewhere what I think is so obvious in this passage. It is that Paul emphasizes his gospel mandate. Jot it down this way. Paul's mandate to share the gospel. Paul's mandate to share the gospel. Interestingly, in verses 16, 17, and 18, in three verses... If you were to go through those three verses and circle the word gospel every time that you see it, you would have six circles in three verses. Six times in three verses, he emphasizes this um, mandate that he was and that we are to preach the gospel. Now, what does Paul mean by the gospel? I mean, I think most of you would know this, but I want to make sure we're all singing on the same song sheet here. When he says that we are compelled to preach the gospel, what is the gospel? You know, the word gospel means good news, and it is the message of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But in a fuller sense, to share the gospel with someone is to talk to them about their need for the gospel Right there, that we're all sinners, we all need to be saved, and that Christ bore our sins on the cross, and through his death and resurrection, and our faith and repentance and what he did, that leads us or gives us the gift of eternal life. That's the message of the gospel, what Christ did for us, and how that, that makes the difference in our lives. So let me tell you what is not preaching the gospel. You ready? 
inviting someone to come to church is not preaching the gospel to them. It's a good thing. In fact, it's an incredibly valuable thing. And you know that every single week, just this morning, I've raised to you the value of inviting people to come and see. I want you to do this every single week. But may I tell you, it is the lowest bar of responsibility that we have. It's the easiest thing that we might do. I want you to do it. I just want to challenge you to go beyond it. Because when we invite somebody to come to church, we're inviting them to a place where they can hear the gospel, but that invitation in and of itself is not sharing with them the gospel. Number two, praying for someone is not sharing the gospel with them. If you, someone says to you, I'm really hurting or suffering, you say, I'll pray for you. That's good. You should pray for them, and you ought to tell them that you're praying for them, but that's not giving them the gospel. And the third thing is that sharing the gospel is not giving your personal testimony. It's important to share your testimony. You ought to share your testimony. It's your witness of the difference that the gospel has made in your life. But just because you tell somebody what Jesus did for you doesn't mean that you have explained to them what Jesus can do for them and how that can happen. So sharing your testimony is not sharing the gospel. To preach the gospel is to declare to someone else the gospel work, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and how that can change their lives. Now, the Bible says in verse 16 and verse 17 and 18, Paul talks about preaching. And you may think, well, I get a pass on this. I'm not a preacher. <laughs> Pastor, you ought to be preaching to a mirror this morning. This is up to you to preach the gospel. No, you're, in, you're incorrect. Because the word preach means to proclaim. It means to tell or to declare it. And all of us are called to declare the gospel. In fact, Paul, in this context, and I won't take the time to, to un unpack it. You can go read it, chapter 8 and chapter 9. In those two chapters, Paul simply says this. Listen carefully. Listen. He says, the gospel is the most important thing. It's more important than your preferences. It's more important than your liberties. It's more important than your rights. It's more important than, than you, your reputation. That the gospel is the most important thing. And we have all been called to share it. So Paul says, I preach the gospel. But in verse number 16, he says, the fact that I preach the gospel is no reason for me to boast. I, I can't really brag about the fact of what I'm doing in preaching the gospel. Necessity, he says in verse 16, look at it. Necessity has been laid upon me. It means that, that God has given me this command. He's compelled me to do it. I can't really brag about it. I'm simply being obedient. Now, what if you came home from work one afternoon and your son or daughter had made their bed because you said to them before you left, when I get home this afternoon, that bed had better be made. What if you came home and they were waiting to greet you at the door and they said, guess what I did today? I made my bed. Well, if you're a good parent, you would say, way to go. You would encourage that. But in truth, you might say, well, of course you did. I told you to. That was the command that I gave you. You can't really brag about simply being obedient. Paul said, I'm not bragging about sharing the gospel. This has been laid upon me. This necessity has been laid upon me. And then he goes on in verse number 17. I love this. It's real transparent. He says in verse 17, for if I do this thing, this preaching the gospel, if I do this thing willingly, voluntarily, I have a reward. God gives me a command. And if I keep his command, he gives me a reward. 
If I share the gospel willingly, I have a reward. But if, I do, if, if, if it's against my will, if I don't do it, it doesn't negate the command that has been given to me. If y'all are listening, shout amen. Watch this. Loved ones, if you share the gospel, God will reward you for doing it. But if you don't, it doesn't change the fact that he has in fact commanded you that you are to do it. It's almost as if someone has said, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. God says, I've given you a command. I want you to fulfill it willingly. And if you will, I will reward you. But know this, I have simply given you the command. And Paul says in verse number 18 that the reward that we have for sharing the gospel is simply the privilege. In fact, listen to what he said in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 19. He says, after all, what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not you? If it's not you yourselves in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming, for you are our glory and our joy. Paul said, you know what's going to be the greatest thrill for me when we get to heaven? It's going to be the thrill that you're going to be there with me. That, that you will be my joy and glory in heaven because I got to share with you the good news. Paul says, I'm compelled, and all of us have been compelled. Now, by the way, if you're saying, well, pastor, you're talking about Paul's mandate. What about my mandate? Do I really have a mandate to share the gospel? Isn't that just for preachers? Isn't that just for people who might say they have the gift of evangelism? I'm, I'm just normal Joe Christian here. Really? You want me to actually share the truths of the gospel? Where have I been told to do that? Well, how about Acts 1.8 for a good start? Acts 1.8, which by the way, are the very last words Jesus ever spoke before he went back to heaven. The last syllables out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be in that power. You shall be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we say, I'm so grateful for the Holy Spirit. He illuminates the word for me. He teaches me. He convicts me. He encourages me. He helps me through the dark night. I'm so glad for the Holy Spirit. But do you know what else he does? He fills you with the power of God so that you can witness for him. How about Matthew chapter 4, verse number 19? You know what that verse says? Jesus said, follow me and I will make your life wonderful and blessed all along the way. And then you'll get to go to heaven when you die. Is that, is that the way that verse reads? No, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You follow me, I'm going to send you to get some others. And how about Paul's own words in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20 where he says, we then are ambassadors for Christ. The simple fact is we have a mandate from God to share the gospel with others. The second thing this passage teaches us is Paul's discipline for sharing the gospel. I'll just say this quickly, but it's, it's an important thing in verse number 19 when Paul says, for though I be free from all men, and he was. Paul was a free bird, man. He was free. He was a Roman citizen, so he enjoyed all the protections and rights of a Roman citizen. He was well-educated, well well-versed, well-spoken, well-traveled. He could go anywhere in the empire he wanted to go, enjoying all of the rights and freedoms as a Roman citizen. And he was free from Judaism. He had come to faith in Christ. So he'd been set free from all of the legalistic um, laws of Judaism. He was just now free in Jesus, enjoying the journey to heaven. And he said, though I be free from all men, I have decided to make myself a slave, a servant to all. 
This was his discipline. Rather than living for himself, he disciplined himself to be the servant of others. So he says, beginning in verse number 19, to the Jewish people, I, I spoke like a Jew. I, I talked like a Jew. I acted like a Jewish person because I wanted to win some Jews to Christ. And, and he's talking really about the nominal Jews, the Hellenistic Jews. And then he talks about those under the law, the legalistic Jews, the Pharisees. He says to them, I, I even kept some of the Pharisaic laws because I wanted to be able to have a witness with them. Not because he needed to to be right with God, but because he wanted to win them to Christ. And then he said to the Gentiles, those who don't have a law, I became as one without the law. doesn't mean that he didn't, that he didn't follow the Lord. It means that he didn't speak like a Jew to the Gentiles who wouldn't understand that language. It's interesting, if you go read Acts 17, where Paul is on Mars Hill in Athens, Greece, preaching to the Gentiles, he doesn't mention anything Jewish. He's preaching Jesus, and when he's preaching to the Jews, he quotes the Torah. But when he's on Mars Hill preaching to the Gentiles, he quotes their own philosophers. Because he said to, the, to those outside the, the law, I'm going to be like them so that I can give them the gospel and I can win them to Christ. And then to those that are weak, I became as weak that I might win them to Christ. Now, verse 23, he says, all of this was done for the sake of the gospel. I made myself a servant to all of these different ones for the sake of the gospel. We could look at Paul's life and say it is absolutely true that the constant in his life, no matter who he was talking to, no matter what their situation was, no matter what their point of view was, no matter what their religious background was, the, the constant was the gospel. He spoke to them about Jesus and what Jesus had done. And we could say honestly that Paul gave up his freedom and he gave up his ease and he gave up his comfort and he gave up his leisure all to see many people come to Christ. And so let me, let me ask you a question as I begin to close. If Paul gave up his freedom, his ease, his leisure, his preferences to win many to Christ, what would you give up? What would you sacrifice in order to win your cousin to Christ? In order to win your loved one to Christ? In order to win your neighbor to Christ? In order to win your, your classmate or your coworker to Christ? What would we sacrifice that we might carry out the mandate to preach the gospel? Well, we ought to carry out the mandate like Paul did. We ought to be motivated like Paul did. So lastly, this text tells us about Paul's motivation in sharing the gospel. Why did he do this? Why did he sacrifice all these things and have a life of, of missionary service and, and travel around to make himself the servant to all these different groups that he might carry the gospel to them? He did it for two reasons. One is that he might win them to Jesus. Look at verse 19, verse 20, verse 21, verse 22. In all those verses, he says, that I might gain them, that I might gain them, that I might gain them. I want to gain them. The word means win them. I want to win them to Christ. I did this so that I might win others to Jesus. We ought to, we ought to do the same because we're motivated by the same thing, that souls matter and people need the Lord. And we want to witness to them. The second thing he says in verse number 23 is that, that I might partake with you. Like, I've gotten this grace gift from Jesus, this salvation from Jesus, and I want to take what I have and share it with you. I'm partaking of his grace. I want to share that grace with you. There's an old saying about sharing the gospel that says that every Christian is just a beggar telling another beggar where we found bread. And that's what Paul's saying. I want to be a partaker with you. I want to share in this gospel with you. So Paul understood his mandate, 
He was motivated by the glory of God and the souls of men and women. And so he disciplined himself to give away the gospel. Now here's my question to you as we close. Do you think Paul was successful? When he disciplined himself to, to win souls, to give away the gospel, did he succeed? Well, yeah, I see some of you nodding your head. Sure, of course Paul succeeded. But how do you know, really? You don't know that he succeeded because of the number of converts. You can't say, like, one million saved. (laughs) We don't know how many converts he had. We have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us. So we don't measure, listen carefully, all campuses, shout amen if you're listening. We don't measure success in evangelism by the number of conversions. Because that's not our work. That's God's work. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We measure success by our understanding the mandate and our willingness to embrace it and to be faithful in it. We leave the outcomes to God. All we do is have the conversation. If they come to Christ, praise the Lord. If they don't, we keep praying. If they reject us, it's okay. They reject Jesus, really, not us. So it's okay. But we count success by faithfulness, not by converts. Let me close our time together today by giving you a goal and a discipline and a habit, which I've tried to do every single week in this series. Our goal in this regard of personal evangelism is simply to fulfill our Lord's command to share the gospel. It's pretty simple, isn't it? The Lord commanded it. I I just want to be obedient, right? That's my goal. I want to to fulfill his command to share the gospel. But that's not going to happen automatically. In fact, we know it doesn't happen with most Christians. It doesn't. Most Christians rarely ever, if ever, share the gospel with another person. We pray for people and we tell them, we invite them to church. Those things are good. We give them our testimony. We say, God's been good to me. All those are good. But most Christians never articulate the truths of the gospel to someone and invite them to trust in Jesus. So it's not going to happen automatically. If that's my goal, then I must embrace a discipline. And the discipline is that I need to have gospel conversations on a regular basis. And that is on purpose. That doesn't happen on accident. I have to begin to have gospel conversations on a regular basis. And in order for that to happen, I need to embrace this habit. And the habit is to look for divine appointments and to seize those opportunities. Can I tell you what's always going to be true? God is always at work all around you. He's always at work in people's hearts. And he's always letting your path and my path cross with people with whom we could speak with them about Jesus. And so we need to have our eyes open, our hearts ready, and see those opportunities. And when it's there, we take it. We don't have to chase them down on the street and jump on their back and say, Banzai, believe or die. We don't have to do that. But we ought to be aware of opportunities and look for those opportunities and seize them. He will give you the opportunities if you will be ready to take them. Amen? So read your Bible and pray. Be a servant. Live with generosity. Be faithful in your participation in the house of God and regularly tell others how they can know the Lord Jesus and go to heaven. And if you and I will do those five things, not because we're trying hard to be better, but because we're exercising some spiritual disciplines, we will grow in godliness. And I have to tell you, some of you look more fit to me now 
than you did five weeks ago.